0: welcome to Inside the Rope. I'm your host, David Clark. In this podcast series, we speak to some of the leading minds in wealth management. This week, I'm excited to be speaking with Andrew Clifford, the recently announced CEO of Platinum Asset Management. He'll be taking over in July this year. Platinum is a real stalwart of the Australian funds management industry, pioneering the area of international investment and also absolute return investing. Platinum manages over $27 billion in funds Their founder and chief investment officer and CEO up until July coming this year, Care Nielsen, has been described as an absolute legend in the funds management industry and has been highly successful. Their main fund, the International Fund, has returned over 13% compound annually and over the last year it's returned just over 25.1%. So it's great shoes that Andrew's filling but he's also had the capability and you'll here in this podcast, a very, very capable person. I hope you enjoy Of course, please subscribe to the podcast if you're enjoying it, share it, and send as much feedback as you can. Thank you very much. Andrew Clifford, welcome to Inside the Rope.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Andrew, if you could start off maybe giving us a bit of your background for our listeners, please.
1: Yeah, sure. So I, um, to go right back to the very beginning, uh, back in 1988, just after the, 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 the stock market crash uh, of '87, I joined Care Nielsen um, in his team at Bankers Trust, where they were um, the team was managing the uh, the managed funds, the equity funds back then. Um, so I joined that team back then. A year later, I was running the Pacific Basin Fund, which was the Asia the Asia Fund, which I did for about five years um, there, working with Care. And then in 1994, when he uh, left to set up. Putnam. He joined. Asked me to join him here uh, as one of his co-founders. So you know, another twenty-four years on. Uh, you know, I've been sort of investing in markets and, and managing money, um, sort of throughout all of that that period. And during that period, has your style or approach changed markedly? Not, not really. I mean, you're always learning and getting better at, at what you do. But um, you know, when I joined CARE in 88, you know, what was interesting about coming in to the Bankers Trust and CARE's team then was that, you know, it was just after the 87 crash, which a lot of people aren't going to remember, but it was a pretty traumatic event, uh, traumatic event for investors. But you know, what What you found when you got there was that this was seen as an opportunity, not, not, not something to be feared, but this was, isn't this great that stocks are now cheap and we can be buying them. And, and and what you learnt really and you know this is very much at the core of what we do is that you know our investment approach is really all about uh, taking advantages of the the cognitive biases people have. So you can read about this in Thinking Fast and Slow by mm-hmm. uh, Daniel Kahneman. We've had a little booklet out for over fifteen years outlining some of these biases. But t- to summarise it in very short you know way for people is that. Um, our intuitive responses when it comes to investing often lead us in the exact wrong direction. So one of the things is to learn and understand about those responses and and how you override them. So again, to give you a bit more detail on that, we've often talked about where are the interesting opportunities in markets, it's where everyone wants to avoid, what they want to um, stay away from, and whatever's hot and much loved they're the things that by and large you should avoid. So to give you the most recent example and, and very uh, a strong example of this is that you know for the last three or four years, people have been very negative about China. Um, and the story, the headline, it was there nearly every week in the Fin Review is about too much debt, bad debts coming financial crisis. But in fact, if you looked at the underlying evidence which is what we talk about, the intuitive response to China is oh, cautious, keep me away from that. Those things people are concerned about, they're real, but actually if you looked at the underlying evidence, there were lots of reasons to be very positive. I can talk about that later, but coming back to your question about what we do and how we do and has it changed, fundamentally that's what we've been doing for 30 years is looking for these areas, whether it's a country, a company, an industry, that people are avoiding for some reason and saying, well, yes, there's a problem there, but is it as big as people think it is?
0: Now, fast forward 23 years and congratulations, you've been announced as CEO starting July, is that correct?
1: That's correct, yeah. C-
0: congratulations, and why now?
1: Well, I guess there's, you know, so Care, care is gonna step down as as our CEO and from running money, and I guess that, that has comes in everyone's working life at some point. Um, he will continue to be part of the investment team. And I mean, I think once you do this job, you don't stop doing it. I mean, he's not gonna sort of um, stop being interested in markets and investment opportunities. So he'll stay in the team and, and keep playing that role. So I guess really it's a question for him of you know what he, he, he wants to do. I think as a firm, there are a few other things that have been going on um, that make now a good time as well. Um, You know, as an organisation, we started 24 years ago with four people in a small room. Um, You could spin around in your chair and talk to each other about whatever idea you had or what you are working on. And at the centre of the process here is that that discussion, that debate about ideas. It's not about someone locking themselves up for six weeks and then turning around and announcing, you know, we should buy Microsoft or whatever it is. You know, no one, we, we believe that there's almost no one who can operate on their own in that fashion and consistently come up with good ideas. At the centre of what we do is a, a really rigorous debate about ideas, and you know it's not very gentle. We're trying to find out what's wrong with someone's idea, not you know promote it in a sort of a warm, fuzzy like, a, isn't that great, Andrew, that you've had this idea sort of approach. So. We started as a group of four people. It was a very easy environment. We all knew each other, and then over, uh, you know, over the years, we built an investment team, um, really capable, uh, lots of experience. But you get to a certain number of people, and you've lost some of that, you know, that interaction. And so we we re, um, designed the way the team worked, going back about seven years ago, is when it started getting people into other smaller teams based on sectors or geography. So a lot of effort has gone into that because asking people to change the way they work is not the easiest thing to do. And you know, after a period of time of doing this and, and re-emphasizing the need for this debate at this at the center of what we do, we now have an investment team that is extraordinarily you know effective and strong in what they're doing. And I see that as a portfolio manager by the number of ideas that come across my desk and the quality of them. So coming back to your question about why why, why now, another part of it has been a lot of work has been going on, uh, getting the investment team ready um, you know, for, for an era um, where you know, it, it, it will be you know, different people in charge. And Basically it's the design of the team that I needed uh, for when I was running the place. Over the
0: years there's been a number of successful or what have seemed to be successful portfolio managers come through the ranks and also out. Do you mm-hmm. think often about how you could have kept those or made Platinum stronger with them, or or do you actually look at those and say, well, no, we're not concerned about that?
1: Um, look, I, I think that it's really one of the things about the organisation that's reasonably unique is how long people do stay here. So, um, you know, we do have a very deep and experienced team. Um, over the years, we've had 14 people at a level of portfolio manager. Um, Prior to Care stepping down, we've only seen four of them leave. Um, uh, two of them were our founders, so you know they 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 retired. Um, one of them is now back in the team. Toby Harrop uh, is back as an analyst. Um, but I think over time you must lose some people, and you know uh, people in this business are ambitious to do their own thing. I think the fact that we've kept people as long as we have and also, what I often point to when you go to the, the, the way we work, the formula of what we're doing, is every one of those 14 portfolio managers has had a record of outstanding outperformance over time. And you know, it's not the water that's coming out of the pipes here that's making that happen, it's the, the fact that as a portfolio manager, if you're sitting in a team with lots of great investment ideas coming to you, It becomes, I don't want to say it becomes an easy job, but it's not as hard as it looks because all I have to do is really respond to which of these ideas are best. I actually see the portfolio manager role as much more important than just what stocks go in the portfolio, but ensuring that the quality of the ideas that come through are good, entering into that debate with the analysts about their ideas, making sure the right questions are asked. So, you know, you you can't keep everyone and I think that, you know, everyone has a different idea about how these things should work. I I, I think we're doing doing pretty well on that front.
0: Now, now Platinum was sort of very early on in opening up the Australian market to international investment and particularly in an absolute return focus. Um, Over the last 10 or so years, we've seen a few other managers come into that space and it grow quite a lot. How do you think about that competition and, and, and how it affects um, the platinum
1: business. Yeah, it's it's interesting because we've always seen competition really as being the market. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got this enormous universe of opportunities and we're trying to make sure we get the best out of that. And there'll always be other managers somewhere in the world who are doing that. And in the early years though, the, the, the key competitors in that sense of who's going to get the dollar out of, um, the market here, you know, it was Capital International, it was Fidelity, it was whoever the big international names were, they were all here in one form or another. So there's always competition. Um, you know, there, there are these other, some managers uh, locally have done a great job with their returns and, and built good businesses and, you know, I am in admire them. I mean, I know how hard it is to actually do this because I've seen other people who've come along and got great returns and got very little money out of the market as well. So Um, But at the end of the day, each of us are faced with the same problem. We wake up each morning and come in and it's all very well that we did a good job of the last three or five or 10 years, but it's the next three, five and 10 that are going to count. So, um, you know, I think that's just the way of the world. I mean, at the end of the day, even with our $27 billion, it's a tiny fraction of what is available to be managed both here and, and across the globe. So there's plenty to go around. Um, if we could
0: maybe just switch gears a little bit, and we've spoken a lot on this podcast and previous podcasts about the difference in style of managers in terms of relative return, absolute return. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how Platinum manages money and, and the style and, and so forth?
1: Yeah, so look, we have always seen ourselves as someone trying to achieve good absolute returns uh, for our, our clients, and we think about that really on a, at an individual stock level. So when we're making an assessment of any given company that we're looking at, you know, we will have a, a very clear view of the the prospects for this business over the next five years uh, in terms of its profits or cash flows, and and looking at that starting price and going well, what is the what is the we like to, everyone talks about PEs generally in this industry, but I actually have a strong preference for taking the inverse of the P, so the E over the P, or the earnings yield, because it can then mean a lot more to me relative to what I'm going to get in the bank. BMW today is on a P of seven, so the inverse of that's 14%. So it's a 14% starting yield on that investment, and over the next five years, we believe those earnings will be readily maintained and grown. So you're looking at going, well, I think 14% is a great return. Now, of course, Everyone goes and measures it in terms of what the stock price does, which is something quite different to that. But ultimately these things align. So we will look at our individual stocks, the the potential return on each of them and build up a portfolio. And we think in doing this through time, we will get good absolute returns. Sometimes at different times, absolute returns have had other things. People think they mean other things that you will get a positive return for them in every year or every three months or every period and you know the ultimately you know markets we all know they have these big setbacks um and through those typically we've done well but it is still the case our stocks will fall when markets fall hard so there's never a promise that this next 12 months will be positive but it's more a a philosophy of considering each individual stock purchase in that absolute sense will give a good absolute outcome over a sort of three to five year period. So it
0: sounds like you're articulating a, a really fundamental approach to investment analyst analysis in terms of analyzing each security and its cash flow and ability to produce future cash flow to determine its value that the market will ultimately seek yeah. out. And and in terms of shorting and managing the downside, um, what sort of activity there?
1: Yeah, so we can, we will take on um, there there are two things we'll do there, or three things really. The first thing that we'll do in the portfolio is when we're really struggling to find worthwhile investments to to hold, we will simply leave the money in cash. So we're not gonna invest just for the sake of it because the market's going up. And I think that's the the, the most important thing that we can do. After that, um, what we sometimes find is we'll see, as we are now, particularly in the case of the US, in in quite a hot market, things look quite stretched and valuations are high. However, our stocks we think look pretty good. We don't particularly wanna sell them. So one of the things that we we may do in a situation like that is short index futures as a way of taking some of the market risk out of the portfolio. Often we pay a price for that over the last year. we've, We've had some of those positions on and they have detracted from returns in that short term sense, but we still think from a risk adjustment point of view on the portfolio that makes sense. And then of course sometimes we'll find individual stocks that you know that we want to short. And here it really just is the inverse of what we're doing on the long side. We're looking at a company going, we think the prospects there are probably a lot worse than the market is, is pricing in. Um, and and therefore we think the stock price is likely to fall and we'll short it. It's a much harder, a much harder strategy to put in place than buying companies because. When people are enthusiastic about something, the sky really is the limit. On the other side, when people are very pessimistic about a company, there's all sorts of other things that come into play. There are trade buyers, there's another, you know, there's the wee competitors who will buy your company out. There will be the management, there's private equity. uh, There's all sorts of ways that that business that's under pressure on the downside gets support in the market. Whereas on the upside, you know, we can fantasize about Anything. So it's it's a it's a much harder thing to do, but we certainly do and have at times in 2000, um, 2001, 2008, you know, made very substantial uh, returns from that short side of the portfolio. And what's
0: the general ratio between the positions or investments in the portfolio between the long where you're hoping for them to go up mm. and the short side where you're hoping for them to go down?
1: Yeah, it, it's changed dramatically through time. So on the long side, you know, we've been between you know, through history, range from 70 to 95, let's say. And today we're probably, in recent years, been at the higher end of that, you know, in, in the 90s on the long side, on the short side. Again, you know, that's varied from, you know, the 20s down to just a few percent, potentially even at times, none at all. Um, we'd have no problem if the market was presenting us with so many great opportunities to just be long and only long. Um, be quite happy to do that. There's no commitment to having to be short. We're only going to do that if we really think there's returns to be added um, from doing so.
0: If I'm right, it looks like you benchmark yourself quite a bit to the MSCI or international indexes. How does that fit when you're so absolute return-focused? Well, um, Would yeah. it not be better to have a, an inflation-plus return or a cash-plus type of
1: return? I think so. You know, It's one of these interesting... Um, it's, a, it's a good question because what we actually though do achieve in our, our management of the money is we really are genuinely benchmark agnostic. So if you look at our portfolio today, uh, it's a little bit over 10% long in the US and with shorts almost nothing in the US, it's half the benchmark and we have 25% in China. Where the benchmark is two or three and completely underrepresents actually that country's uh, economic and stock market opportunity. But it's interesting because when we look around the world at competitors, we see almost no one who, other people who follow a very similar approach to us and yet still end up with 45% in the US. And even though that 45% may not look like the US index, people are still very anchored on it. So why do we measure ourselves against the index when we're trying to make absolute returns? Well, I think to be fair to people is that that universe is what we're operating in. I think that index, the MSCI or whatever one you want, that does represent the opening opportunities set from the share market. So you know, I think that um, we'd be marking ourselves a little too easily to say well you know, made 25% isn't that fantastic, you only got 3% in the bank, when the stock market's up 35. Mm. So I think, I I actually believe what in, I I would suggest investors, the way they should assess us is to assess us in a multiple of ways. They should be looking at the absolute returns, they should be thinking about the index, um, and, and, and having consideration of what's going on in the market. So I'll give you an example of where I think we were marked very harshly by by investors, and that is around about a year ago, sort of in the middle of 2017, I think, um, uh, I have to say these numbers are approximate because I won't be getting you quite the right things because I haven't got the exact numbers in front of me, but I think over a five year period, we'd done about 15% compound, it might have been 14. I think that's pretty good, I I wouldn't complain about it. But the market had done 16 or 16 and a half. So we'd lagged the market over a long period of time, and people, some, some investors would look at that and were very much of all, oh, you guys, you've lost the plot, you don't know what you're doing. Um, I, I felt very strongly at the time we did know what we were doing. We weren't generating those returns, but we're generating good absolute returns. Now, in the last year we've had, since then we had an extraordinary uh, well, year and a half really, and more than made up any lost opportunity people had against the index, but I think you know, you, you could have looked at what we've done there and go, well, actually the fourteen, fifteen percent wasn't wasn't so bad. Um, and you know, we were doing something very, very different for investors. We were through that period had probably been, you know, eighty to eighty-five percent invested, uh progressively more and more away from the US, where other global managers are you know, very firmly focused. So I I I would you know suggest to people to look at us um and any of their managers on a variety of, you know, measures, rather than just rigidly, you know, benchmark or benchmark.
0: Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I would put it to you that you know my clients particularly are much more absolute return focused, mm. and you know they want to know what the markets have done. As that that's what the prevailing wind is. Have you had a tough time? You know, in assessing, five percent might be great if the market's off thirty. Yes. Um, that type yep. of thing. But they are far more concerned on the absolute return. Of their money than 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 the relative return because they hate the manager who says to them I've done a great time great job I
1: outperformed by ten percent we were minus twenty five the market was Smart. minus thirty five no and look I mean we absolutely that's sort of our own starting point in investing and that's you know we absolutely concur that that's the way to look at it having said that there will be days where minus five is an amazing return because the market's down thirty but. Um, and, and days when 15 is really not that good because the opportunity set was 35. So I, I, it is just bringing in a little bit of each into the picture.
0: You've got about 13 different funds across that uh, $27 billion that you manage. Is that the right number or should there be more or there's some sector funds in there which seem relatively small?
1: You know, If you had your time again, would you still do it that way? I think so. We, we really see it as, I guess, core strategy. So we really have a a global or international strategy, um, and, and a, a, a variation on that, which is a sort of a long only um, uh, fund. And then Asia, Japan, Europe, uh, and the three sector funds. So then they're offered in different ways to people, you know, it, whether it's overseas, you know, uh, foreign clients need a different type of fund, or people like a, a listed investment company over uh, a managed fund and, and so on. So we really see it, but we really see our core as that that global or international uh, uh, strategy is the core of what we do. It's where we have the most flexibility to provide the best returns. Now in any given year, you can bet that Asia or Europe or Japan or healthcare will be better. Um, That's just the way it will be. But what we're gonna do in our global fund is move from if we think China is the place to be, we will have investments there. And if in three years' time that opportunity has gone, we'll be looking somewhere else. Meanwhile, the Asia Fund, you can bet, is gonna have a pretty big China content come what may, simply because it's 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 where it's been asked to invest. Um, so the way those other funds work for us is that, I mean, in part, um, it provides internally a great you know, development opportunities. So, you know, every good analyst ultimately wants to manage money and we need to give people that opportunity. It also has another thing of what I call forcing your investment team to engage with the market. So if you can imagine if you're an investment analyst and your responsibility is banks. You know, you can sit at your desk and go, oh no, the banks, they're they're all expensive. I don't like any of them. Or maybe I like just this one over here in Norway or something, you'll just, you know, and, and what you said there's a pattern with analysts who have no responsibility to manage money. They either have one idea a year, or they have one a week. Both are pretty unhelpful, in fact. Uh, because what you're really asking them to do is, there are, you know, that idea that everyone absolutely loves, this is perfect, well that's great, but actually the, the, the reality of managing money is you need to actually probably invest in a whole lot of things that are Well, that's sort of okay. Um, Otherwise, you'll have a very, very small suite of ideas. So you need everyone in your team to be engaged with the market. So if your tech team have a fund to run, now they need at least 25 to 30 of the best ideas in tech. They have to find them because they have that responsibility for that fund or in healthcare or in Japan or in Europe, whatever it is. And the beauty of that then for the the portfolio manager of the global funds is you're going, okay, I don't really like any of those 35 tech ideas. I'm not going to have any of them. But at least I have, I'm forcing those teams to come forward with that opportunity
0: set. Switching gears, Andrew, you mentioned uh, a moment ago that you've had a great last 12 months. Mm. Can you explain why you've had such a good last 12 months and, and maybe from an investment perspective, looking forward, how you're feeling about things?
1: Yep, so I think, so. I started to talk about earlier with China, what I think happened up until about um, the middle of 2016, end of 2016, was we had um, incredible risk aversion in markets. So you saw that at different times. Whether it's um, people's love of, you know, three, four, five years ago, you know, we could only get investors to talk about what great rates they could get on their term deposits. For example, um, there's a lot of desire for sort of very low risk, low volatility strategies. Um, you see it in in. The debt markets everywhere, there's this, I don't want to take any risk. And it's like this long echo from 2008, people didn't want to be exposed to risks. Um, and there were lots of bad things going on in the world. We had, you know, uh, Europe, you know, ongoing rolling from one crisis to another. We had the big slowdown in China and all the concern about the banking system and indebtedness there. Um, and then we had various crises here and there that blow up in the oil market and so on. So there's sort of good reasons for feeling cautious, but what everyone's um, fears were doing was meaning that they weren't really investing in equities as enthusiastically as they might. So that's the opportunity. In particular, if you go back um, you know, a year ago, the two big opportunities were uh, China and uh, Europe and, and particularly European banks. And to just take you through those very quickly, as I said, everyone has been completely fearful of China and what's happening there. But if you actually looked at the underlying evidence, there are extraordinary reasons to be really positive. So one of the most important, well the most important one is the private sector continues to thrive. It doesn't use debt and it is growing very quickly. But after that, the big problem is in the state enterprises where there was too much steel capacity, chemicals, glass, aluminium, you name it. Um, It's where all the debt was. And at the beginning of 2016, so full two years back now, there was the the policy of supply side reform, which is really the government, uh, Beijing saying, we need to put these state enterprises on a commercial footing. They can't be funded if they're losing money. They can't be funded if they're not meeting environmental standards, and they can't be funded if they didn't have approvals in the first place to build. So we first of all saw this in coal and steel. And what happened was that capacity started to be closed. Not good if you're the guy with your steel plant being closed, but nevertheless, what it did was transform the profitability of those industries. And we saw it in Australia, you couldn't miss The move in the coal price during 2016, or an iron ore which was also reflected these changes. So it was a very substantial change, but the really important thing about it is not because I want to own a Chinese steel mill or a coal mine, I don't, but was the fact that these loss making industries were transformed into being quite profitable overnight, therefore all the bad loans in that, that part of the economy all of a sudden were good. And this rolled through the economy, so chemicals, um, glass, cement, uh, and so on, and then even more broadly across the private sector now because of the much more stringent environmental controls that are being put in place. So it was important because we were dealing with a risk within China, but China was a risk to the world, so we were dealing with a risk Mm -hmm. to the broader world, and also, this is throwing up incredible opportunities at a stock level. So for example, recently we've been buying uh, fertilizer companies in in the US and Europe because that industry is is facing severe uh, capacity constraints in China because of the pollution issue. And what looked like an industry that might be oversupplied for another three or four years is now we think will tighten very quickly. So if you're not watching China, you're sort of not watching for the opportunities that are gonna happen everywhere else. So the last year, I think eventually toward the end of last year, with respect to China, people started to relax. We stopped hearing about the problems. What I don't yet see, and this is what's important for the future is so I don't see yet people being really incredibly optimistic and enthusiastic about the prospects for that economy and the companies and the earnings. And of course we're buying stocks very cheaply there. So without just one last thing on China before I talk about Europe, and that is that I don't want to pretend there are no risks there. The political system has its issues. What President Xi is doing, we think is very unhealthy for the country in terms of trying to uh, uh, reduce the the limit on his terms. Um, there are issues with the capital controls that will come from time to time. And there's some very clumsy policy at times around the property market. There are risks, it's not a perfect situation, but, but indeed you know, people don't recognise all the good things that are happening there to the extent they should. Um, quickly on Europe, I mean, Europe is a place people have been very bearish on, but it has been in a clear economic recovery for a long time, and then came along Brexit. And plunged, um, you know, the markets back down, and in particular the banking stocks down uh, very, very heavily. Um, and you know, we were buying uh, Italian banks at below half book. People are talking about the bad loan problems, but the bad loan problems, again, any examination of that saw that these had long been dealt with. You know, there was a tail end of it to be dealt with. And you were buying in a weak banking system. Italy had its issues but the two banks were buying incredibly strongly positioned. So you were really being given some gifts there, but also we had similarly banks in Eastern Europe, in Hungary, um, uh, and, and the, rest of, the uh, rest of Eastern Europe as well. So again, that fear around Brexit and the breakup of the EU gave you an opportunity to buy, buy stocks very cheaply. Again, that, that now has been reasonably well played out I think everyone's quite optimistic about Europe now. Um, but again, these things take time to flow through. So while everyone's quite embracing that idea, it takes a long time for everyone to actually invest on the back of that. So I still think there's some upside and, there. And
0: in the US, are you concerned about any of this fiscal stimulus that's coming from the Trump government? Yes. Which markets seem to be a little bit nervous about the inflationary pressures of it? I,
1: I think um, most certainly the pressures that that is going to bring to the bond market in terms of issuance is a concern. Um, I think we already were looking at the, the, the big risk factor in markets is the tightening cycle that the US is now uh, in. And of course that nearly always brings econ- you know economic growth and uh, stock market cycles to an end. It's just the history of it. I wouldn't expect it to be any different So we already had a backdrop where we thought, okay, this is going to get somewhere here. Probably not. You know, it's hard to make assessments of timing, and we try not to. We just we're aware of that that backdrop when we're we're buying companies. That looked like it was out a bit, but now with what is projected in terms of the budget deficit, um, you know, there will be pressure on the bond market from uh, the. The effort to fund those deficits, and I think that's going to provide a real challenge for markets making headway in the U.S. Having said that, the very short term looks incredibly healthy. I mean, earnings, um, uh, any variable on economic growth already looks very good before all of that happens. So, and by short term, you're talking a year, two. Yeah, in the next six months to a year, the you know the the prospects for the economy are very good. The question is whether the market will start to. You know, so markets, you know, we always have to think the market is thinking about not this year. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're very aware of this year, but they're really thinking about, well, what about, you know, 2019 and 2020? Markets are really starting to think about things that far ahead when you look at their price action. So the challenge will be the very short-term news flow looks, has been good, probably continue to be good, but valuations are high and somewhere over the horizon there's going to be this concern about, uh, how the budget deficit puts pressure on interest rates. And to summarise your positioning going into that, very
0: overweight China, um, underweight US, how much in cash,
1: if any? Yeah, so that's the, the, the challenging thing. So cash is only um, sort of around the, the 8% mark and then there are shorts that take us down to a net invested position of around 82 or so at the moment. and. That, that is sort of one of the debates. You know, it feels like we should have more cash today, but the problem is we keep finding great companies to buy. Um, so, you know, my long experience is that when in doubt, go and look to your individual stocks and make the decisions based yeah, on them. The overall so position's almost an outcome of, of that, it. not pretty. Some of our we we have today uh, quite a lot of commodity stocks in the portfolio, which is um, unusual for us. And these are around metals, and there's a story here relating to electric vehicles that you know that we're invested in. You know, it's a very interesting area. Everyone's very enthusiastic about Tesla, and in the Australian market, everyone knows about the lithium stocks and the lithium price. And it, but it's a classic thing where everyone is prepared to invest on what is obvious and can be seen, but then are very questioning whether electric vehicles, I think, are a bigger, are gonna be the big story that we think they're gonna be. And very simply, they're gonna be.
0: So you're on the pro side? Yes. You think they're gonna be a big story? They are, they are,
1: because the regulations in both China and Europe will ensure, you know, several million vehicles are being sold within two or three years. And you have, in in Europe, that might be a lot more hybrid, plug-in hybrid vehicles, but you know, it's already the case that a company like BMW last year sold 100,000. It's about 5% of their output are uh, a hybrid. A third of the three series in the UK is sold as a hybrid vehicle with almost, you know, it's an, and it's sold at the same price as the diesel. Um, and, okay, these are vehicles that only get 50 kilometre range before the petrol kicks in. But, you know, this is happening and it, under regulations it must happen. And, and who wins
0: that? Is that... Uh... It sounds like you might be saying the incumbent automotive manufacturers win that, rather than a Tesla of the world and the disruptor disruption. Or do you think Tesla wins that ultimately? I, I,
1: well, I think there have to be multiple there have to be multiple winners. And what people forget is Tesla is a very distant number two in electric vehicles because the number one is a company called BYD in China. Um, so I don't think many know that. Yes, they don't have <laughs> Elon
0: Musk marketing them, obviously.
1: <laughs> but look, Tesla's look. Tesla's been a fantastic story and I, I I would not be arguing that they'll do anything other than sell a lot of motor vehicles. Their stock price is insane. But they will sell a lot of cars. But also, you know, the the, the traditional automakers have to sell a lot of electric cars as well or they will face fines and so on. And they, their problem is that they might have to subsidise them. The beauty about a BMW or Daimler is that the the ability to sell an electric vehicle, uh, all electric or a hybrid, you know if you're going into the showroom to buy a five series, you know they can sell you that additional thing at a at a premium, and the BMW buyers are used to doing that, you know they want the extras, whatever they are, yeah. whereas if you're going in to buy a, a Volkswagen Golf, um, you know essentially an electric version will costs 35 versus 20 for the combustion engine. And that's a big ask of someone who's, you know, so the only way Volkswagen will get electric Golfs into the market is heavily subsidizing them and that's gonna cost them. But for BMW, for Daimler, we think they've got actually a very interesting position. And again, it goes to that thing that people think about electric vehicles as a environmental story. That's the regul- regulator's side of the story, but the Tesla side of the story is that actually this is a better mousetrap this is this is a better car I like this experience of driving this versus my traditional vehicle and so we actually think there there'll be something in there for everyone for both.
0: Andrew in conclusion what what would be your tips to or well, what what do you see is the biggest mistakes that retail investors make?
1: Well I think to be fair, retail investors is the biggest mistake everyone uh, everyone makes and that is to go back to what I was starting about at the be- talking about at the beginning is that nearly invariably when someone puts to you an investment idea, you will have an intuitive response. And it might be, oh that sounds great. And when you have that response, you probably shouldn't do it. And when you have the is, as I say around here, that makes me feel unwell. Um, then actually stop and consider the underlying case far more carefully because so much of our human conditioning will lead us intuitively to make the wrong call. You need to stop and just carefully consider the underlying facts before responding. Sometimes that feeling that it's good, you should go with it, but don't go on that feeling, go on an assessment of the underlying case for what you're doing. Terrific.
0: Thanks, Andrew. We've covered a lot of ground. Thanks for joining us at Inside the Rope.
1: And no, thanks for your time. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.